Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, November 6th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Britt Giroli. We got the whole band back together. We told you it wasn't going to be long. And as we mentioned on our episode on Wednesday, our Friday episodes throughout this offseason, you know, with some holiday exceptions sprinkled in, uh, are going to focus on what's happening in real baseball. And on this week's episode, we're going to talk about free agency being officially underway, even though there's not really any movement there, so we'll talk about what we expect in the weeks and probably more accurately months ahead. Uh, we'll talk about the overall landscape around the league as big changes are happening with several teams. AJ Hinch and Alex Cora, they're employed again, so we will discuss that as well. Uh, it's great to see both of you again. It's only been nine days technically since we last podcasted, but it took us about 20 minutes once we connected to actually start recording the show. So uh, it's good. It's like a nice reunion that we've had today. <laughs> the band's back together. Exactly. I was going to say I missed you guys, but now we already had a, a 20 minute uh, catch up before we even hit record on this. So yeah, I'm let's over get you on already. Let's get on with it. So the, <laughs> I think the thing that I want to start with today is the qualifying offer free agents, some of the top free agents on the board this offseason. Uh, the players who received the qualifying offer, Trevor Bauer, DJ LeMayhew, JT Realmuto, George Springer, Marcus Stroman, and Kevin Gossman. Uh, it's an $18.9 million contract for 2021. Of that group, I think you could maybe see Gossman taking it, but I think as Andrew Baggerly has reported, he's in talks with the Giants about a long-term deal of some kind. Maybe that's a three- or four-year deal. You know, Stroman, maybe, just because he ended up sitting out the 2020 season. But the other players, they're four guys. I think Bauer already said he's not accepting it. There's no way LeMahieu, Rayamudo, or Springer are playing on a one-year deal right now. So I want to talk about these guys more just in terms of expectations. And I know Eno had a piece looking at what different projections had for free agent contracts. And they don't look wildly different than off-seasons past, right? I mean, we have a couple guys who are looking at nine-figure deals based on on that calculation. Rayamudo and Springer sort of leading the way. And you know, Rayamudo, to me, is like a better version of Yasmani Grandal. And Grandal got a pretty nice contract last offseason when he got that four-year deal with the White Sox. So, you know, I'll start with you. As you put that that big chart together in your piece, did you come away thinking at least at the top that this free agent class still looks pretty similar to other recent free agent classes that we've seen? Yeah, I think what it's missing is a 27-year-old. You know, a 28-year-old, a guy who debuted really early and was a star and would get like a $300 million contract. That's that's why Manny Machado got that much money. That's why Bryce Harper got that much money is that we're so young. I mean, in effect, Real Muto and Springer are of that quality, in, you know, in a way, 
but they're already 30 and 31, you know, so they're just not going to get the same amount of years. They're not going to get that huge deal. So I don't think that like if we don't have like a 203, we actually kind of did have a $300 million guy because Mookie Betts signed the extension. And that counts as part of this process. So that's our $300 million guy that we have usually one or two of every year. And then we're going to have $200 million guys probably in Real Milton and Springer. And um, I think the real difference is actually down um, once you get past those guys. Uh, you know, I looked at Kylie McDaniel's list at ESPN and um, he had 30 one-year deals in his top 50 uh, free agents. I I think that's got to be different. I mean, you know, I think that other places like MLB trade rooms and Fangraphs had a more uh, traditional approach where they had uh, you know fifteen to twenty one year deals, and that that's I think a little bit more normal thinking. But I think Kylie McDaniel might be right. I think we may have thirty one year deals. Um, in the top 50. And so I think that's relevant, especially for a guy like Kevin Gossman, who got the 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 uh, the offer. You know, Marcus Stroman is projected in this for getting four years and 61 million. That's an aggregate projection from three different spots. So if you have four years and 60 million, I don't know that you're you're begging to take the you're going to jump to take the 18.5 or whatever uh the the qualifying offer but kevin gossman is uh projected to get two years and 34 million i think he's going to take it i think he's going to take that and i think that a lot of people below him are going to get one-year deals colton wong i think will get a one-year deal brad hand might get a one-year deal tommy Listella, jackie bradley jr jock peterson a lot of those guys that might have had two or three-year deals in the past I think are going to take one-year deals and hope that the market is better next year. Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head. The top guys are going to get paid no matter what, right? This is sports mirror society. The guys at the top <laughs> never suffer, right? It's the middle class that takes the brunt of things, right? It's the the six-year free agent who is like, well, damn, this is a ridiculous market, right? It's, it's the second, third tier level of guys who are going to probably want to hurry up and take the the best offer they can because what we haven't seen yet guys is the market flooded yeah. with more non-tenders this free agent market is going to get even bigger and we've already seen it a lot of these options that clubs are declining like brad hand was a, a surprising one you're gonna see charlie morton decline by tampa bay all these options that look like they would have been okay in a regular year Clubs are now like, nope, we can probably re-sign you cheaper. Let's see what the, the rest of the market does. We are headed toward a really unprecedented winter. It's going to be slow, which sucks for us, right? Because, well, you're going to be kind of, it's not really a hot stove. It's more like a stove that you haven't turned on yet and you're, you're hoping stove still that just works. doesn't exist. I think it's probably, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably like a more accurate term because... It's going to be a, there's no winter meetings. They're virtual. That's where a lot of stuff gets literally thrown up against the wall to see what sticks. So it's going to be a weird, a weird rumor season. But I agree with you. You know, there's going to be a lot of one year deals. There's going to be a lot of guys who say, okay, can I bet on myself? Depending on where you are in your career, am I poised to have a big year and recash in? Or at the point where like, okay, one, one year plus an option sounds good. You might see some older relievers try to do something like that to get some kind of security. How about the guys who worked and worked and worked to get to free agency, their first time free agents, and this is the market they go into? I mean, total luck of the draw, but can you just imagine like a, a Chris Davis on this kind of market, right? Some of these guys who cashed in on these horrific contracts uh, that are just kind of sitting back like, well, 
It, it, baseball was good business a few years ago. Baseball and being a free agent right now, still better business than being a sports writer, but not really great yeah, business. Yeah, like Drew, Drew Smiley <laughs> limping through all those injuries, finally a free agent uh, after a decent year, but you know he's going to get like one and six. Um, you know, Cesar Hernandez, you know, decent player, not going to get, probably going to get a one year deal, you know, Jerickson Profar, you know, uh, take a, took a, took him a while to get there. He's 28, you know, he, he does everything. Okay. He's just not gonna, he's not going to make anyone jump to, to, to give him three years like he might've in the past. And I, I just wanted to kind of peruse some of the arbitration projections at MLB trade rumors. And just like kind yes. of name some guys that might be released. Uh, one name that jumped off was like Hansel Robles, $4 million for the Angels. Uh, in a normal year, I think they'd be like, yeah, sure, fine. He's a pretty good reliever. This year, they might be like, ah, you know what? I might be able to get another reliever. I might be able to get like Robbie Ray and turn him into a reliever, you know, uh, for that money. So, uh, and he might start as a starter right. for me first, you know? So it's like uh, guys like that. Uh, the A's have a bunch of guys where like Tony Kemp for a million. Um, uh, you know, Sean Manaya even for 6.4, like, you know, I could see them making a decision there that people would be surprised by. Uh, I don't think Travis Shaw is going to get $5 million yeah. from the Blue Jays. Uh, that's what the arbitration projection is. So Travis Shaw is a guy like, I think normally you'd be like, okay, $5 million, you know, it's the last year, you know, he's going to be a bridge to some younger player. This time you'd be like, no, nah, let's just throw the younger player in. Let's see. We got to have somebody right. else back there. So. Here's the thing with those projections, though. Are you going, which number are you going off of? Because MLB Trade Rumors has three numbers. And I've talked to a lot of agents that are like, listen, they have no clue. They're just throwing all this up there because what no one's talking about, and me me and Eno are, because eventually we're going to write about this, is how do you evaluate 2020? Arbitration is based off of what you did. And some agents I know are going to, to look at the last 162 for a player and say like, here, here's a mock full season, the 60 games of this Mm. and the past 100. Some People are going to try to take that 60 game season and, and times it, you know, and, and magnify it to make it. This was what, what it would have been if this player had stayed on track. Trade Rumors has three different numbers there using three different formulas that are wildly different figures in a lot of cases. So what, I mean, what do you guys think about how different? I mean, arbitration, these guys have no idea what they're going to get, no idea what they're going to make. And I wonder if smart clubs are going to say, you know what, we should lock some of these guys up to some team-friendly deals while the market is low. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if uh, there are some players who are still a couple years away from free agency who might take a multi-year deal this winter because of that uncertainty. It's a it's a fair question to ask. I'd, you've talked to some agents, so I'm just I'm curious, you know, do you get a sense that they are going to try and ride this out? Or do you think when a reasonable early offer is presented, teams are going to jump at it, or players are going to jump at it, rather. I mean, Charlie Morton is one of those guys who I think when he was a free agent last time around with the Rays two years ago, he jumped on that deal quickly. It was like two for 30, and his option was among those that was declined. It sounds like there might be some interest in him already. He's an older guy, though. I think for an older free agent especially, if you're going to get what you want from the team you want early on, you have the luxury of being able to take it. You know, you want to just kind of call your own shots at this you stage. Yeah, money. you've already made most yeah. of the money you're going to make. It's really more about choosing where you want to go for the last contract of your career, potentially. That's why, like, Charlie Morton is going to retire or pitch for the Rays. I mean, that's how I see it. Yeah, and and all these other teams are, like, speculating about him. And didn't he say, you know, like, 
hey, I want to stay by my family. He basically said in Zooms, I'm going to retire or pitch for the Rays next year. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to take him <laughs> at his word for it, you know? Um, but but I, I think it's interesting to ask like what, what they should... I, if I was advising an agent, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't talked to as many about it as I should have at this point probably, but if I was advising an agent, I think I would say if I was a guy who had a top 10 uh, free agent, then I'm going to play the waiting game. Because mm-hmm. that's what the front office is going to do. They're going to wait, 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 wait. But if I've got a, a guy who's only going to get a one-year deal, I think I want to take the one-year deal, no matter what almost what the number is, um, and make sure that my my player has a spot. Right. You know, like yeah. that my player is not going to get a minor league invite. That, that my player is going to play in baseball next year and have a chance to establish his value and, and get back on the market. So... Yeah, like Robbie Grossman, man. I'm not waiting around. If somebody offers me five million dollars, <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna play for the, whatever team offers me one year and five million dollars because I don't think like there could be a waiting game where Robbie Grossman doesn't have a job. Right. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I think if you're an agent, you take it as is Trevor Bauer gonna jump at the first good number he gets? Is Rachel no, Rachel gonna, Luba his agent? Absolutely yeah. not. Um, they're gonna wait. They're gonna play the the Harper Machado game. Both those guys signed in what February. When yeah, spring training was already exactly. going on, teams have money. There's also an, a rumor going around in agent circles that all these teams, despite what they have said publicly, made money. Mm-hmm. That the financials of it all has been widely exaggerated. Maybe they didn't make as much as they make in normal years, but I've heard from multiple people that every single club has has avoided being in the red. So all these cuts you're seeing around baseball that we'll get into later in the show, um, this is all because instead of making you know, $5 billion, you're making $2 billion. And so just because this was a down year doesn't mean these clubs are, are just bleeding money. I think that's something that the owners like to act like that's happening, right? Even in good years, they never act like there's a lot of money. There is money for the top players. And Manfred's saying that, like, there's $3 billion, billion of losses. Like, that could be $3 billion of, like, you know, money they didn't make, you know? Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, my my could have made $10 billion. Yeah, my exactly. My my impression of the finances of a team is that the uh, players are paid for by the TV money. That most payroll is paid for before a game is played. Like the, it's really obvious that. if you look at the at the at the A's. It's really obvious because you know how much their TV money is, the national TV money is, and you know how much their revenue sharing was. And uh, for a long time, their national TV money was fifty million dollars a year, and the uh, revenue sharing was thirty million, and their payroll was eighty million. <laughs> wow, Every crazy year. how that adds up. Yeah, uh, it was like real easy math. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty obvious. And you it yeah. also, I mean, in, in Oakland, it might be an extreme case because they're, uh, you know, they'll have Tuesdays where there's like 500 people at the park. But I bet you that most organizations work like that, where they're like, we want the payers played for. Like, we want the, the attendance to be kind of the cherry right. on top. Yes. The $15 taco bowl. Yeah, does not pay for players. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you don't want it to be. Like, that's to be a risky way to run a business, right? To yeah. be like, oh, we have to sell 300,000 Taco Bowls this year in order to pay for Ry- Ry- Bryce Harper. <laughs> right. No, you want to be like, no, Bryce Harper's paid for. It's like the executive salaries and the bonuses and that, that stuff. That comes out of how many Taco Bowls we sell. Right. Totally. Totally. 
and how good the team is, the merchandising, that's all kind of like the cherry on top, like you yeah, were saying, the extras yeah. that teams like the Nationals get screwed on that. And also why this mass and dispute, speaking of regional TV money, oh the God. Orioles and Nationals have been locked in this battle for 10 years. And people wonder, like, if the Nationals actually got the money owed to them, would they be a bigger player? On, they're already a pretty big spender, all right. things considered, on, on free agent. Um, but, you know, would that just decimate the Orioles? I don't know. It will yeah. never know because that will keep spinning and the, the 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 appeals on appeals on appeals. Like what like what is happening right now? So the Orioles lost in court like about a week ago again, but they are now going to appeal that lost case again to a different court. So yeah. I do wonder by the, the time case this was is about paying what they what the Nationals were owed because they were they were supposed to be a payment. Yes, because they were backlogged. They were supposed to owe them a lot more of the revenue share from previous years. Uh So this is about back payments. So the Nationals do borrow money from MLB to make up for that a little bit. But again, it's not it's it's a weird scenario. So I don't know how much the windfall will help them at this point. I don't know if anyone's going to make any money by the time you pay all these lawyers for 10 years of work. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Uh, billable hours always (laughs) win. I feel like we're in the wrong business. You just keep appealing and appealing and keep getting paid. Like, well, how did I miss this potential, like this, yeah. this potential work path? How did I miss yeah. this? <laughs> yeah. I keep wondering about that too. It's hard because I do think there are some unique factors in some markets. The brewers made some cuts um, to, to creative people. Uh, Caitlin Moyer was their director of new media. And I think at least one member of her team also was let go. There are other cuts that were made by the Brewers too. And I think about them as a team that it is smaller market. Mark Atanasio has plenty of money. That's not the debate. But attendance in Milwaukee kind of exceeds expectations for other similar sized markets, right? So if you don't draw those 3 million fans over the course of the year, I do think that has more of an impact they in a might place like Milwaukee. On some of that. Right. Yeah. There, there might be St. Louis. There, there might be more correction happening there than in other places because of how that that scenario that Eno just outlined works. I also don't think the Brewers have a massive TV deal. I'm trying to remember the details off the top of my head, but it's lower third, if not like bottom five even in terms of actual value. So it's not like they are crushing it on the TV side and they actually did take, relatively speaking, a big hit compared to some other teams that spend the way they spend. Right, right. No, I think you're right, because I think the Cardinals GM came out and said that. Um, same thing. I mean, in St. Louis, Cardinals games are a huge tradition. It's like a religion. So I do, I do think that it does matter to some extent what team, what market. The Yankees rely on their fans, yes, but they also have the Yes Network, which is and a they huge also cash sell cow. so much. Like, it doesn't even matter how good they are. Like there are Yankee hats in, in Tokyo, every corner of the you know, world. Like the, there, you can find a Yankee. Yeah. Hat. That's yeah. Maybe some of them are knockoffs, but I, I think they like definitely <laughs> do well. They probably sell more uh, jerseys and, and hats than any other team. So there, there's in some ways they're a juggernaut and will will continue to keep rolling. I think, but you know, the Dodgers, the Dodgers won. And there was literally like a tweet that was like the same day that was like, find our merchandise in the 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 store will be open and i'm like god <laughs> capitalism man it's just it's unrelenting it it really uh, is yes. i think the interesting thing too that, that has happened recently is the mets have a new owner and 
The Mets have been the butt of more jokes on this podcast than any franchise in the league, thanks to the Wilpons. Like, this is a big deal for the Mets and for Mets fans. Like, you're no longer a laughing stock, at least in terms of process and ownership. Uh, you might still be a laughing stock on the field. You might be the team that spends a lot of money and doesn't win, but you're not going to be the huge market team that doesn't spend with total clown owners at this point. So, I mean, the Mets are going to be probably at the front of the line for any of these free agents we're talking about. The multi-year deals, like they have it. They have the money. They have the path to go out and improve the roster as much as any team in the league right now. But I keep wondering, who's the competition for them for top-end talent? Which other teams are actually going to be in a position to add top free agents. Probably a lot of teams that either had big contracts coming off the books or teams that, like the Mets, were previously underspending anyway. Yeah, I, th- I saw this uh, tweet by Andy Martino. I don't know how it's sourced, um, you know, where you know where, where it comes from, but teams perceived by rivals, it says, as likely to spend significantly this offseason. Blue Jays, White Sox, Giants, and Mets. There's a little bit of a different situation in each case. I think the Giants, basically, the payroll has been coming down um, and so they have a little bit of, uh, of place to spend there, you know, basically some of the bum garner money and some of the, you know, some of that money that, that they didn't really spend in the past. Um, and the team has been getting better as a, at, at hitting, you know, so it seems like it's a good time to kind of maybe, uh, to add to that. The Blue Jays and the White Sox, I think are just young teams that would have been spending anyway, you know, young teams on the cusp that could spend, in an interesting way. I think the Blue Jays, if they could spend on an arm or two, uh, could make a big, like, it'd be pretty funny. Marcus Stroman, hey. Um, <laughs> it'd be a pretty good fit for that team, huh? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the White Sox could use some pitching too. Um, so, uh, you know, that I think that's... And then the Mets, I think the Mets are really interesting because from what I've heard internally, um, you know, Cohen, I think, is going to uh, be focusing on... Um, spending internally, like spending on infrastructure, spending on player development, spending on coaches, spending on uh, front office anal- analytics, because they're a little bit behind in that in that regard. Um, right. And so that he could be have a quiet year and just be like, hey, we're just I'm just trying to figure out what this team is like. I'm just listening to everybody. I'm just hiring some important coaches and this and that. And like it may not be a big splash, but however. He is like an art collector, Luria type on some level. So I could see him doing the back end stuff and uh, signing some big free agents, trying to trade for Lindor, maybe trying to trade for Arenado. Like I could, I could see him doing both. I mean, you remember when yeah. AJ Preller joined up? That wasn't an ownership change, but you remember he, you know, basically acquired every player, you know, while also working on the back end scouting Latin American pipeline that ended up being the better the better move in the long yeah, term. Like, yeah, it didn't really go that well. <laughs> I was waiting the, for you to uh, point the that The first out. part didn't I, work I agree. out. <laughs> I don't think a lot of times the, these big splash things uh, work out that well because yeah. there might be underlying problems, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think what was kind of cool to see from Cohen was the first thing he did was reverse to pay for all Mets employees to pre-pandemic. That's the kind of thing that, okay, that doesn't win you a World Series, but that's the kind of thing, as we all know, people that are around teams, the culture is important. That's how you keep people. That's how you get people that want to go the extra mile for the Mets. And I think you're right, you know, I mean, how well did 
the, the stupid money that the Phillies threw around a few winters ago, how well did that work out? Well, it worked out terrible. Matt Clintac is no longer there. Mm-hmm. They're a, a team in crisis mode with interim GM Ned Rice. Uh, you know, they've got a ton of holes, really bad culture from what I've heard, a lot of things that are going wrong there. Mm. So it's not really the whole let's thump our chest and throw some money at players type of thing that really works most of the time. But I would like to see the Mets still make a few feel-good moves. I remember last winter, there was some optimism regarding, oh, the Mets might have too much starting pitching. And they, they, they've kind of done the good team on paper thing before, but what the Wilpons never seemed to do right was also get the rest of it correct, right? Like, let's let's hire random people for random positions. There's definitely going to be some addition by subtraction, which is Jeff Wilpon was the only owner in baseball that was in the friggin' clubhouse. And I have to tell you, man, from the player's perspective, I don't think there could be anything worse than the owner in the in the clubhouse, especially when the owner is telling you things like you're not really hurt. (laughs) That's exactly what you want to hear from someone who's never put on the uniform. (laughs) Exactly. And owns the whole team. A lot of implicit pressure in him just being the owner. You know, it's, like yeah, it's like okay. the CEO of a business hanging out in the break room. Exactly, like, you know what I mean? Dude. Like, hey, are are you on lunch? Checking yeah, out lunch? This, like, hey, did, did you? Do uh, you think you guys should be back at work? Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Can you imagine it's that? So bad. And I don't. I think Cohen is. I. I. I you know, there, we don't know how good of an owner is, but I think he's not going to be the worst owner in baseball, which is was Jeff Wilpon. So. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely going to be uh, some addition by subtraction there. Uh, there are some fundamentals. In fact, I think the Mets lineup is good. I think the question is back end starting pitching, pitching depth, um, and some defensive questions. Um, and in that's actually a good place to be. It's I think maybe a little bit better place even than the Phillies were, uh, because you're not relying on a lot of growth from the young players. Like the the they they've grown. J.D. Davis is who he is, you know, like Michael Conforto is who he is, like Brandon Nimmo is, like these are all good players. So the question is, what are you going to do at shortstop? Are you just going to be okay with defense um, and spend the money on starting pitching? Um, or uh, or do you let the market come to you and just sign, um, you know, guys that, that make sense for your team and, and, and try to improve a little bit every year? That's, that's my impression that I think will happen. So you saw it a little bit already. They signed Malik Smith on a minor league deal. Not a big deal, but he could actually help that team a lot. I mean, they've been looking for someone to be a good center fielder. And to be like a, a good for they traded for them in the past. Instead of trading for Jake Marizic, sign Malik Smith to a minor league deal. It's perfect. It's a lot better than they've done in the past. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do want to say it's nice for the Mets. They're a long suffering fan base. Just let them be not a big, of, not as big of a joke, right? Just, right, let, just right. let them have a little hope. Can we retire? LOL, Mets. <laughs> I don't know if we can ever actually retire LOL Mets, but we're just laughing for different reasons now. And and I, I do feel I'm happy for Mets fans because I've said this before. They they deserve better. Like they are, are passionate fans who want their team to be competitive and not the laughing stock of the league for all the reasons they have been. This is this is a big deal for them. Uh, I think there's a few things they should do. The Lindor trade rumors make sense to me. And I think they're built to sort of pull it off, right? If we use the Mookie Betts trade that we saw between the Dodgers and the Red Sox as kind of a rough value equivalent. I know Lindor versus Betts, we'd probably all take Mookie Betts, but it's not that far off. You're talking about a potential superstar 
with one year left. Uh, so let's maybe consider something like, I don't know, Dominic Smith plus Ahmed Rosario, right? Like you could actually pull that off. Andres Jimenez plus somebody. Like you can you can build the package pretty easily and it sort of checks out as one that might work for both sides. And for the Mets, you're not blowing up your core at all to do it. And like the Dodgers did with Betts, you could very easily extend Lindor and make him one of the faces of your franchise. I think that would be very logical at this point, just given where they're going. The only name that makes me nervous is the Ronnie Mauricio ad. I, I it, it's probably what it, it's probably what it takes because if it's Dom Smith and Andres Jimenez, it's like okay, it might be kind of like a role player-y shortstop and a decent hitter, but you know, will he will he hit in Cleveland? It seems like a big question for all the guys they get. You know, um, and does he have a lot of defensive value? I don't know. Um, so I think you do have to throw Ronnie Mauricio in there. It's just, there's just a little bit of, like, like a non-zero chance that you're giving away some, a future star, but, um, yeah. you know, it is, it is, you're getting a star. So it's more for one year. That's, that's where I'm like, I don't know what that third piece is. Is it Ronnie Mauricio or is it, you know, a different name, but, um, it's a, it's a, it definitely makes sense. Uh, I think I could see Lindor in New York for sure. You know what's kind of cool about Cleveland? And like, I get it. If you're an Indians fan, you're kind of sick. They can't keep Lindor. But you, you probably knew this for a while. You had to make peace with it. So they told their, you know, cuts, their cuts going on all over baseball. They told their employees, hey, listen, we're not firing anybody in the middle of a pandemic. We're not firing anybody next year. What we are going to do is we're not going to bring jobs back. We're going to give the people that are going to be laid off 12 months to to look around for jobs to know that we're not bringing you back but you have 12 months. I thought mm. in a a world that's very inhumane, right? The Nationals 2 days before contracts expired, let go people and that was it, you're done, you're not getting paid anymore. Um I thought, you know, looking at, at what has happened around the game, um for Cleveland to do that, uh for the Dolan family to do that, um Really, I just I thought you thought deserved to be recognized because how many people, how many jobs, no matter what you do, would be like, you know what, we're not going to bring you guys back, but we're going to give you a whole year to look for stuff. I mean, it's like the opposite of what the Angels did, which is we're going to put you on furlough and not pit you through the pandemic and also say that you can't go look for a job because yes. you're still technically, you know, linked to us. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I just. I'm sorry. That was really I'm gonna. Cool. I'm gonna harbor some ill will toward the Angels for that. <laughs> well, I I agree. I think you've seen a wide variety of like what teams have done and haven't done. And I mean, can you imagine? I think the Nationals were the last team with contracts that expired on Halloween that two days beforehand were like, "Hey, guess what? We're getting rid of you." And how oh, contracts yeah. work is you're done, right? You're not. There's no severance. There's nothing. You're done. And you know, there's just been some really obviously terrible things going on no matter what industry you're in. And I just thought hearing that from multiple people out of Cleveland this week was just really, really a, a, a cool gesture, if you will. Right. And they'll get a lot less positive attention for that than they'll get negative attention for trading away Lindor, which is probably not fair. How you treat hundreds of people you're employing matters a lot. Trading away a superstar shortstop for other young players. I mean, that's just a more of a tactical business decision that's just on-field related that doesn't impact the lives of countless people in your organization. Could they do both? My argument would be yes, but if they're only going to do one of those things, taking care of a lot of employees is the better path to choose. Yes. 
someone's going to to employ Francisco Lindor. Is You're someone right. going to you know like he doesn't need a he doesn't need a, you know he's going to get paid. But some some of these guys getting laid off now in an industry where jobs are going away and not coming back. You know, that to me, it was a very humane thing to do. Who knows what baseball looks like in another year, but at least you have a chance, a fighting chance to set yourself up for that next step. RJ Anderson on CBS had a really good piece about um, the brain drain that's coming and uh, the brain drain that's coming in baseball because there was always a pressure on smart people in baseball to take smaller deals basically take less money to work in baseball there's always that pressure it's amazing to me as a writer that i'm asked to take to take less money to work for a team than to write (laughs) that's that's how that's how ridiculous it is that's how bad it is to work in baseball sometimes is that you're taking a pay cut from writing um and so uh uh the 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 the, just crush us ina yeah what rj RJ was writing about in his piece was just that like that pressure is now on uh you know agms and analytics guys and all sorts of people um not so much maybe player development and coaching side because they they have very specific knowledge but somebody who has like translatable knowledge to another field is going to leave uh, especially if it's someone who was like, you know, doing okay, saved up some money and decided he would like work in an analytics department with his PhD. You know, there are people like that who are just like making $30,000 working for the Phillies as a PhD. You know? um, yes. They're going to be like, you know what? Um, I think I'll take the, you know, $500,000 job or the $200,000 job and, <laughs> you know, bank my time in baseball and be like, that was fun, but uh, I'm out of here, guys. So <laughs> I'm going to work at Google. Yeah, exactly. So there's definitely some of that's going to happen um, as a part of this. And uh, maybe that's going to happen in, in Cleveland, too. But um, one of the things that makes Cleveland great is the ability to kind of keep pumping out great pitchers to keep having good teams, even as they trade players away constantly. And I know it's, it's frustrating as a fan. You, you think maybe they could get over the the top if they, you know, really invested in the team, but um, for whatever reason, that's not going to happen. I don't know that we have the power outside of this to make them spend money. No, I, I think in a lot of ways, the way that they are trying to function is not totally unlike what we saw from the Giants at their World Series peak, but the difference is they're not spending on the free agents to fortify that core. Like That's the core. They're trying to run with the pitching core. They also seem to be really good at developing middle infielders. Go back and, and look at uh, prospect rankings throughout the last 10 years. There's so many guys that were buried in that org who ended up going somewhere else, even if they're just bench players and found opportunities and are proving to be at least capable big leaguers, right? So they they develop some very important ingredients to a winning team internally at a high rate. That gives them a chance to continue doing what they do and, and possibly hang around, even a division where the White Sox are, I think, in that spending mode with a good young core. The Tigers, you know, they have young pitching. Maybe they're going to start spending a little bit more now as well. They got a good pitching coach today, yep. Chris Fetters. That's a good one. That's He's, a big yeah. addition, right? If you you got good young pitching, you should invest in your pitching coach, and they absolutely did that. Uh, and this comes. Yeah, up I the heard heels. behind the scenes that um, um, Casey Mize had not really received much instruction. That's brutal when you have top end <laughs> talent and you Casey your coaches can't Mize, like yeah. help them refine it, or they're afraid to, or they don't know how. Like that's 
awful. Like that's the worst case scenario. It defeats the purpose yeah. of having Casey Mize if you can't actually turn him into the Casey Mize he's supposed to be. Uh, but the Tigers, I mean, they were among the teams that hired a new manager. Two disgraced managers back in the game. A.J. Hinch goes to the Tigers. Alex Cora goes right back to the Red Sox. That announcement came a couple hours before we started recording on Friday morning. And those two things have kind of pushed Tony La Russa all the way to the back burner. Tony La Russa's return to the dugout was a huge surprise that I think was only, what, seven, eight days ago? And that feels like it happened a month ago already. So new managers, but old managers. And, you know, Britt, you wrote the story uh, with Andy and, and Mark about how the league feels about Hinch and Cora. We talked a little bit about it on our last playoff episode, uh, but this isn't really that surprising, is it? I mean, Cora going back to Boston, it felt like that was inevitable for the better part of the last week, and it was only a matter of time before it became official. It really did, and I really enjoyed all the back-and-forth reports about how, oh, maybe it's Sam Fold, he's a finalist, they're really considering him. I'm sure he was considered in well regard as long as the other candidates. Alex Cora was always going to manage this team. As long as his suspension was up, and the league was going to issue no further punishments, which is what we were told before we wrote that story. Both of those guys were always going to get jobs because they yeah. have proven track records. They have enough people in their corner and they're likable personalities. That, to me, is what can't be understated here. They both expertly played this whole situation. Cora called guys and apologized. Hinch did that very like somber, reflective MLB Network interview. They both spent the past year on this apology tour um, and, and knew enough to not really say anything to stay out of the, when, when to stay out of the spotlight. And there's a lot of people that have a problem with this, but they're probably going to be silent now. There's a large faction of the game that has a problem with this that feels like lessons were not learned, punishment was not doled out. But I always felt like as long as the league said it was okay, clubs were just going to go like, all right, it's okay. We let PED guys back in. We let guys who are suspended for things back in. We have domestic violence guys yeah. still pitching in this league. So I think before you throw a stone, you got to look around at the glass house that is MLB. Yeah, I think it's a really uh, uncomfortable position that basically the position on baseball, uh, position from baseball on cheating is a little bit is okay. <laughs> Yeah. That is the yes. message right. they're sending. Yes. yes. I mean, the, I have more on this on Monday, uh, but in a piece on Monday, but I, I just, you know, they're trying to like uh, have these shades of gray and like, okay, the, the Astros were worse than the Red Sox. So they banged on the, the trash can. Like they, they, they transmitted the signs, whereas the Red Sox just kind of broke the signs using the technology they didn't bang on the trash can so that's why the astros got really reamed and the, the red sox got just minor minor slap on the wrist um so maybe it's it's okay but ascor was involved in both of those yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and i guess like what is was it really a difference or was it because the athletic had actual people on record talking about the astros and they really didn't have that same level of information about yeah the because sox. everybody knew about the trash cans like i knew i don't know i don't know if everybody but i knew about the trash cans I just never thought I could report it. It never even occurred to me that to write it really? as a story. I never. Thought, I didn't know about it. Well, I, you know, it, the way that I heard about it was from other players. It just, it just really read like one of those things where they're like, oh, you know, the Astros, they're doing this, you know, mm -hmm. and you're like, 
okay, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. It never even occurred mm-hmm. to me that maybe like listen to the audio or like, you know, like try to <laughs> yes. break it. But, you know, Jeff Passan actually had a note about a trash can in one of his stories. So I also thought, okay, this has been reported. Like people, you know, it's out there. But but once the players went on record, that, that changed things. But that that's that's kind of what you have to do with baseball is kind of put them in a corner. Otherwise, they won't do anything about it. And uh, I think that's what happened with, like, the steroids. At some point, they, like, were putting so much in a corner. Like, people were, like, people are seeing steroids in lockers and stuff. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, when, when it became that obvious, like, baseball felt like they finally had to do something about it. But it also took, like, some reporting in that case, too, right? It was, like, the TJ... Yeah. Was it the uh, McQuinn? What's his name again? TJ um, Quinn from the, ESPN. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they, they, they broke the whole Balco thing. That was like before they even had a testing, right? Like it was like they broke Balco, and then baseball was like, okay, I guess we got to do some testing. Yes. So yes. So it's true, though. I had an agent say this exact thing to me. You know that you're saying they turn a blind eye to it. They know it's going on. Then it leaks. The public is outraged, and then MLB does something about it. That yeah. is the pecking order. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit weird for me because I also wonder if, if Carlos Beltran is going to get the benefit of this, um, you know, year off and you're fine and come back or if he's going to somehow uh, be the one that's not allowed back. And why? Why is that? Um, it's not it's not easy to just be like it's on race lines or anything because Cora, you know, Cora's coming back. But um, I hope that Carlos Beltran isn't just, you know, black blackballed from baseball, just you know, when we have AJ Hinch as the, the manager of a exciting, possibly exciting young team. And like, so I, you know, I, I think that there's um, some icky, icky feelings on, on some of this coming back. Um, and then, but then there's like, you know, at some point uh, it's, a, there's a question, I think it's a larger question for society as well, which is just like, how, what do we do with people once they've, um, paid their dues like once they've had the punishment like are how what is an appropriate amount of time to you know like be punished what's an appropriate amount of punishment what do we welcome them back do we give them great jobs when they come back or maybe should have aj hinch got taken like a triple a job right that's exactly what people mentioned in that article we did with craig and mccullough is okay no one's going to deny them a chance to feed their families but do they need to slot back into these plum jobs yeah. And as for Beltron, I don't you kind of get the undercurrent of a feeling that he doesn't want to manage outside of New York. So he didn't it's not like he interviewed for other things. He mm. also might realize, you know what, I have a really good career. Maybe I should just duck out now because people are starting to wonder, will this tarnish his potential Hall of Fame bid? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should just take the Hall of Fame circuit, the signing, the Hall of Fame signing yeah. circuit's pretty, pretty easy money. Mm-hmm. Well, like, there's also a huge difference in, in yeah, career earnings differences between guys like Hinch and Cora versus Beltron. It's not even close. Right. Right. Well, I just, I just hope that the doors aren't closed to him if he, if he wants them to be open, because obviously, you know, I, I would say that Hinch and Cora are more culpable um as a player i think you have a different sort of perspective on this sort of thing you're just like trying you know doing everything to win i think it's actually on the manager to say no 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 we can't do this for the white Sox opening right. it, and like brit said beltron maybe isn't interested in jobs outside of new york that's entirely possible but he would have been a better fit than tony la russa exactly i was gonna say like how much more <laughs> sense would that have made if the Jeez. white Sox had gone with carlos beltron instead of tony la russa and again i will say it may not have even been an option aside from the fact that the white Sox didn't even interview aj hinch and it doesn't even 
sound like they really interviewed anybody. And anybody. if they did, they were just locked Sh- in on LaRusa from ownership down. Well, that that seems like a failed process, is it not? Like that seems like yeah, a there, massive failed process. Are there rules about the process too? You're supposed to have a certain amount of candidates. You're supposed to you're supposed to make it. A, it it's like. If the athletic wants to hire a writer, like there are rules about the process, they have to like they have to put it out there. Even if they have a, a guy that they want on some level, like they have they put it on the board and like you know allow people to interview for it and like I don't know. This is uh, this is kind of old school, just like you know Jerry Reinsdorf being like, oh, got my guy. Yeah, let's hire my friend. Let's and then like friend. Rick Hahn very clearly wanted AJ Hinch, so it you know you. I don't know. The, you create the, I, more I think, of a stratification in your front office, for sure. Right. I do know that the commissioner's office has to approve whatever like moves you do, and, the, and they are getting increasing um, power and responsibility and input on some of those hires. But this just seemed like – keep in mind that Reisendorf isn't like a normal owner either. Like He's like one of the most powerful owners in baseball. Like He's had hands in – He almost scuttled know, the Mets deal. I mean, he was trying to. Yes. Yeah, so I just I wonder if you know if it was another club, if Manfred and MLB would have felt like they had a little more control over different ownership groups. Mm. Reisendorf like was on the team that brought that picked the the learners like to to take over the Nationals when they had a team to DC. Like he's kind of in that upper echelon of of sports owners, and I wonder if there was nobody and no nobody was going to be able to stop him. Yeah, it's also kind of surprising to me too. Like I heard at some point that Larusa is supposed to groom Joe McEwing to be the next manager. And it's like, what does Joe McEwing not know how to do about being a manager after spending several years on coaching staffs and already knowing oh that team inside and out like that, that seemed like a complete farce explanation. I mean, that was, I haven't really seen a good one. The best piece I've read so far is James Fegan's piece about Larusa and you know, the fit there and, it's very complicated, but it's a really good piece. I would recommend people check that out if they haven't done so already. Yeah. The best part of all of this is that Rick Renteria was named a finalist for manager of the year. <laughs> best award possible. <laughs> I mean, the White Sox, the White Sox Twitter feed had to congratulate him. That's very, I mean... very awkward. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh. And the other thing we kind of touched on this on Wednesday at the beginning of the show the Gold Glove winners being announced on election night. Why? Why would you do that? Like, It should be a fun night of watching some of the best plays of the year, right? Baseball fans should unite with a beer or a coffee or a glass of wine or a sparkling water or whatever and sit around and watch basically just two hours of awesomeness. That's what it really should be. And it was, you know, a tree that fell in the forest with no one really around to hear it outside of the tweets that were interspersed with all the political tweets on our timelines that night, where I just feel like it it completely dismisses one of the cool parts of the game that is very regularly overlooked in just like mainstream baseball conversation, right? Defense and gold gloves doesn't get nearly as much attention as it probably deserves. Yep. I didn't watch it. Did you guys? Nope. I didn't watch it. I had to. I had to do, had to do a quick reaction on it, but... Um... <laughs> I will admit to switching channels a lot. Um, I think it's also sad because, and and I think it was from what I've heard, it's a Rawlings call. Uh, Don't blame it on Sabre. They were, Sabre was involved in the SDI, which is the the defensive index that was, uh, that determined the the finalists and and the winners. 
Um, but uh, it was Rawlings' call to do it on that day, so that uh, that was all on Rawlings. I don't even think it was baseball's call because it's a Rawlings award. Um, I you know I think it's also sad because um, the uh, defense is the hardest thing to get right in metrics. So you could have I think you could have a lot of interesting conversations about which defensive metrics are better and uh, which defensive metrics like one guy better and you know which defensive metrics don't agree with the eye test and and stuff like that. I mean like the coaches for example I think basically gave Alex Gordon a Gold Glove at thirty six. Uh, when the defensive metrics have said he's, you know, scratch or, or worse uh, for like a couple of years now. Um, and I think, you know, I think, you know, intuitively you'd say, yeah, 36 year old, probably not the best left fielder in baseball. Um, so maybe it was a legacy award, a sort of pat on the butt on the way out. Um, but uh, there, there, there's, there's parts of the process that we could talk about parts of how, why is it so hard to, to get defensive metrics? Right. Right. Because the, the reason that it's so hard is because you have somewhere between 40 and 50% of your uh, chances to prove yourself on defense as you do on offense. Um, so, you know, that makes it, that makes it, that makes it tough to figure it out. Also, I think of the 40 and 50% chances you have something like 70% of them are just easy and don't really add that much to the information. They're just sort of atom balls, you know? Right. The ball so, that anybody in the league could handle capably. Yeah. But the big snubs were, uh, you know, Lindor, Tatis, uh, Bellinger not winning, even though outs above average had him at the number one uh, outfielder in baseball. I think those were, and then Gordon Gordon winning was a big head scratcher. Yeah. But yeah, there was just no, I mean, I cover baseball for a living and I was like, I can't watch this. Like, couldn't they have just had it this week? <laughs> This upcoming week? Just wait a week. I think there's probably a lesson learned that will hopefully be applied. I mean, it won't be a problem next November or for the next few Novembers after that. Yeah. But remember this, four years from now, in, in the year <laughs> exactly. in the year 2024, that the Gold Glove Show will not be aired during election night because of lessons learned uh, here in 2020. So... <laughs> Wow, it's going to be a, a slow-moving off-season, like we said up top. But I think we'll have plenty of ground to cover, and uh, it was fun getting the band back together. If you want to read some of the pieces we were talking about, we talked about uh, Brit's piece with the the Nationals making some changes. You know, Eno's uh, free agent projections. I mentioned James Fegan's piece about the Tony Larusa hire. You can check out the Athletic for one dollar a week at theathletic.com/slash rates and barrels. Be sure to give us a follow on Twitter. She's at Brit underscore Giroli. He is at Eno Saris, and I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to be it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>